0: The scripture reading today is from James 1, 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when... By his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Julie. Pray with me if you would. Oh, loving God, you provide for our every need. You feed our bodies and our souls. And yet we hunger to know you more and more and more. So feed us with your word today. We ask this through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, this week and next, uh, we are finishing the first... Kind of the first movement, you know, like, a, like a, a lot of classical songs have movements, big chunks in the song. The first movement in James's letter to Christians. You can find the book of James almost all the way at the end of your Bible, at the end of the New Testament. And we've seen so far as we're just slowly marching our way through James that he's a blunt, hold-nothing-back, pull-no-punches kind of writer. And so far in the first movement, it's really all about trials and suffering and hard seasons. And he's shown us so far how trials and suffering can actually lead and are designed to lead to maturity and to wisdom in your faith and in your life. In other words, the, the very things that we, that we hate and sometimes we resent and we hope don't happen, God wants to use for your good. The very things we try to avoid, God wants to use to sharpen you. Now, this morning, he's turning the tables. He spent a lot of time kind of explaining how how trials can lead to perseverance, and perseverance leads to wisdom and to maturity. This morning, he's going to turn the tables and look at the other side of the coin, offering a warning that the hard seasons of your life, although they're meant to point you to God, they're meant to draw you to God, can push you from God. They can cause you to stray from God. They can draw you to him or they can drive you away from him. Uh, One one author, Alec Motyer, wrote this. He said, every trial is also a temptation. Every trial is also a temptation. And it just depends on how we respond. For a mature Christian, a trial is an opportunity to grow in maturity and in joy and in life. But for for someone who is not mature in Christ, it is just as easily a chance or a risk that you might stray from Christ. Here's what he says. He says, In a time of trial, it is always easier to slip back than it is to step forward. So this morning we're thinking really about trials and temptations, and we're asking how can your trials be an opportunity for growth and not run the risk of a temptation to stray? Now, right at the outset, I have to note, you might be thinking, wait a minute, Chris, he's been talking about trials, and now it says temptations, I I thought those were different. They are and they aren't. Uh, They aren't, it's actually the same word. In in, In the original, it's the exact same word James uses for trials and temptations. Now we know from context that, that earlier he's talking about all sorts of life circumstances, and here he does talk more about, he uses trials in the sense of temptation. But we're gonna see through the course of the day how they're interwoven. But we're gonna start with temptation, and we're gonna talk about it, we're gonna use the word temptation because our trials can be temptations that dr- that drive us away from God. So as we're thinking about Temptation this morning. What a what a downer of a subject. As we're talking about thinking about temptation this morning, first we have to ask where does it come from? What what is temptation? We all know what temptation is, right? You know, temptation. You're at your, uh, your your favorite restaurant. You've had a great dinner, and the waiter comes up to you after dinner and says, "Can I tempt you with a slice of chocolate cake?" And you say, "Yes, you can." Now here's the thing about temptation. Just like that waiter, we assume it's always external. We tend to assume that temptation always comes from outside ourselves. It's the waiter's fault. He came, he tempted me with, if he hadn't asked me if I wanted the chocolate cake, then I, w- I wouldn't have been tempted and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had it. It's kind of a silly, surfacey example, but you get where it goes deeper, too. If that person who just gets on my nerves and knows how to push my buttons, if they didn't tempt me by acting in such an obnoxious way, I wouldn't be tempted to get impatient and lose my cool and to just flip out in anger on them. It's their fault. You see? We assume temptation is external, but James says it's internal. He says the source of your temptation really lies inside of you. Ultimately, it's your desires that lead you astray, nobody or nothing else. Look at verse 14. If you have your program, it's there. If you have your Bible, he says each person is tempted when, by their own evil desire, they are dragged away and enticed. It's internal. It doesn't come from, it doesn't come from first, it doesn't come from God. Now, this is actually, you might be thinking, well, of course it doesn't come from God. Some people, even if they won't say it and think that, they kind of operate that way. And to some extent, it makes sense. If God really is all-powerful, if he's powerful over everything, then when I'm tempted, it must mean that God sent the temptation, right? It's a good question. It can be a compelling argument. The trouble with that is, if you give in to the temptation and then sin, it's God's fault. It completely lets you off the hook. That's what James is talking about in verse before in verse 13. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, nor does he tempt anyone. Think about it. If if God wants you to live a righteous and a holy and a joy-filled life, then why would he try to lead you astray from that? doesn't make any sense. Now there's one good kind of almost counterexample that some of you may be wondering, wait a minute, what about Job? Wasn't God involved in Job's temptation? If you've read the Old Testament book of Job, you know what I'm talking about. Well, the text says that God let Satan tempt Job. Satan came and said, let me try to draw him away, and God allowed it. And we'll talk more about this in just a minute. There's a difference between God actively tempting someone and God allowing something. There's a difference between God actively doing anything and allowing anything. God does not tempt us. Temptation's not external from God. Here's the second point. It's also not external from Satan. It's not even, you know, the, it's, the old, it's the old kid's excuse. Your kid does something wrong and you scold them and say, oh, the devil made me do it. Devil may, maybe some of us have even said that. And many of us, even if we won't say that, because it's kind of a silly trait saying, like, we still think that, well, it's Satan. Satan made me do it. He led me astray. But notice this. In his whole explanation of temptation, James never once mentioned Satan. He mentioned Satan and the devil in other parts of his level, uh, letter in other contexts, but never once in this one. Now again, you might be thinking, but wait a minute, what about Job? Didn't you just say that God let Satan tempt Job? Well, he kind of did and he kind of didn't. And this is going to make more sense in a minute. So just hold on to this and then you'll see how the parts fit together. Satan did not put dangerous desires in Job. We don't know exactly how it works and I'm not going to try to answer the problem of evil uh, this morning. So don't get your hopes up on that. Satan somehow had a hand in causing some really terrible life circumstances in Job. But Satan did not plant desires in Job. Job's response had to do with his own desires. And again, remember, James says in verse 14, we're tempted by our own desires. Which also means they're not external and that you can't blame someone else. You can't blame God for your temptations. You can't blame Satan for your temptations. You can't blame someone else. You can't blame the waiter for tempting you with that chocolate cake. Why? Well, he offered it. If he hadn't offered it, I wouldn't have said yes. I wouldn't have eaten it. I know I shouldn't have eaten it. Why? You know why? Because you really wanted it. You really wanted it in the first place. Even if you don't realize you wanted it, you wanted that cake. All the waiter did was he happened to offer something you that deep down inside you just desperately wanted, and he made it so easy to say yes, but it's your desire. If you didn't want the cake, you wouldn't have said yes. You see? You made the decision. When tempted, James says, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when by their own evil desire they are dragged away and enticed. We want to blame someone else, anyone else. But James says, no, it comes from within. You see, it's, it's sneaky. It's very, very subtle. We think of it as more straightforward and more blunt, but James says, no, there's a much more nuanced picture. In fact, it's less about what you do, and it's more about what you desire. It's less about your actions, and it's more about your attitudes, you might say, which means that if we're going to effectively deal with temptation, we have to really do some, some deep digging in our hearts. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. You know that, that word enticed? It's the same word that the Greeks used for a fishing lure. Anybody fish? What's a fishing lure? It's the worm you put on the end of your hook. It's the spinner bait. It's whatever you choose to use on the end of your hook. What to a fish? What is a lure? Dinner, and boy, it looks good. In fact, the better it looks, the more realistic it looks, the more it looks like a just a, an incredible dinner. The better it is. It looks like life to the fish, but what's inside? The exact opposite. Death. The fish has no idea. All it thinks is lunch and life and it bites and all of a sudden it means death. Our, our natural, our base desires are a lure. They're like a fishing lure. They look great. They look like life. Until we get hooked. And they lead to death. Um, I don't know if this will land it land or not. You remember the Odyssey, the story of the Odyssey and Odysseus, and he's sailing with his men and he passes the sirens. You remember the story of Odysseus and the sirens? If you don't, I'll fill you in. Odysseus is the hero of the story, and he and his men are trying to sail home, and there's this area uh, where there are these sirens. These, they're called sirens, but they're women who sing this very, very beautiful song on like a rocky cliff, and it's so beautiful that anybody who hears it irresistibly is drawn towards it, and so sailors hear the siren's song, and they immediately order the boat to, to sail towards the song so they can hear more of this beautiful music, and every single time, the song lures these boats into a rocky cliff and it it, it, it shipwrecks every single boat, turns them into splinters and kills everyone on board. Temptation is that siren song. It sounds so good. It sounds so good. It just leads to death, though. This is where we have to start really thinking about, wait a minute, okay, so what are our desires? Because they're subtle and they're sneaky. They're almost invisible. Here's how James puts it. He's going to explain more in verse 15. So he says, so after desire has conceived, then it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it, it gives birth to death. So just like once a baby's conceived, like the rest just happens, right? When a baby's conceived, you not it just, it just grows in the womb, and then it just is born, and then it just grows into an adult. Like it just, not a whole, you know, you have to feed it, of course, but it's almost inevitable, And James is saying the same thing, that once once that temptation is conceived, once that desire is conceived, the growth into sin and then death are almost inevitable. Once you start the process, you can't stop it. So how do you let your trials and temptations grow to life instead of death? Do you notice this? Just in verse 12, he said your trials lead to life. And now in verses 13 and fifteen through 15, he's saying they can lead to death. How do, we, how do we let them lead to life and not death? You can't start. If you try to start at the sin, at the behavior, you're starting too late. That process has been set in motion. James says you have to go earlier in the process and look at the desire. See, we think, we think, we think the Christian life is all about, if you want to use the word righteousness or doing the right thing, it's all about making the right decisions. It's like the dare remember the dare approach to, um, to drugs. just say no, just don't do the bad thing. Just sin is just saying no to, just say no to sin, we think, and, but it, it, it doesn't work. You know how I know? Because every one of us tries it every day and it doesn 't work. <laughs> it doesn 't work because it 's deeper. Overcoming temptation is deeper than just saying no to a certain behavior let 's take the Ten Commandments as an example. Um, if I just don't. Murder. If I just don't commit adultery, if I just don't steal, if I just don't lie, if I just don't covet, then I'll be okay, right? Well, here's the thing. Those things aren't the root problem. The root problem is the desire. Here's one example. Uh, I read a report uh, earlier earlier this year. It's a kind of a survey. Uh, they surveyed a bunch of counselors. And the counselor, they were asking the counselors about how do you counsel people who've had extramarital affairs, who've cheated on their spouses. And so they're asking for all these trends and what do they see? And here's what these counselors reported. A huge number of counselors, the overwhelming majority of people that they work with who've cheated on their spouses, you know why they cheated on their spouse? It had nothing to do with sexual attraction. That was like way down on the list of why people actually cheated. You know why they cheated? Freedom freedom. It was some ver- version of they wanted to feel free again. They didn't want to feel constrained. They wanted to feel young. They wanted to feel rebellious. They wanted to live on the edge. They thought this, that life had just become a straitjacket. It had just become kind of these, these shackles, and they wanted to break out of it and feel alive. And if I can just feel alive, and this is one way to express that. If if somebody's deep desire, if your deep desire is freedom, and somebody says, just don't cheat on your spouse, like, okay, maybe you won't, but then you'll find some other destructive way to express that deep desire. Take one more example. I'm just pulling these straight from the Ten Commandments. How about do not lie? We just tell people, just just don't lie, just tell the truth, and it's fixed, right? Well, no, because why do you lie? At, At the core I don't know if this is totally broad, it's probably most of the time. The reason we lie is because we want somebody to approve of us. Hey, did you get that thing done? Yeah, 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 it's on the way. When you haven't started, actually. Why? Because you don't want them to be mad at you because you actually haven't started. The check's in the mail. Whatever. And, and you, see what's, you see what's going on? It's not actually, it's not that you just want to lie. It's not that you get a kick out of deceiving people. It's that you desperately want somebody's approval and you would rather say an untruth to earn their approval than, than you want to tell the truth and risk them being angry or mad at you. You see? So to tell somebody, just stop lying, it misses the point. You have to go deeper. If you only deal with the behavior and not with the desire that's behind the desire, it's like telling somebody who just broke their leg, just take some Tylenol. You see? Sure, it might it might help take a little bit of the if you take enough enough Tylenol, I guess. <laughs> if you take enough painkillers, yeah, maybe it'll take the edge off of your broken leg, but you're not treating the root issue. How do you treat the root issue? How do you treat the desire? How do we address temptation at a base level? Not after it's too late just treating the behavior. How do you deal with your desires? This is hard work. This is re- <laughs> this it's a, it, it's a lifetime. Like you sorry to disappoint you. You're not going to figure it out today. This is this is a life's worth of work. Because it takes a long time to even figure out, to even have the self-awareness to know what do I really want? Like what am I really after? Am I after reputation or prestige? Am I after a certain life accomplishment? Am I after like finding a spouse and getting married? And if I, if I can just get married and have kids, then my life will be fulfilled and complete. What are you after? Are you after freedom? The freedom to do what you want with your time. One of the ways you know that that's one of the things you desperately want is when anybody else infringes on your freedom to do what you want when you want, you get angry, you see? Like, what, whatever it is, what do you really, what are those base desires in your life? It takes a long time to answer that, but you have to, you start by, well, starting, <laughs> In a couple of weeks, actually, we're going to take a pause. So after we finish this first movement, we're going to pause, and we're going to take three weeks at the end of October to look at three what are called contemplative spiritual practices that will actually help us start identifying what are some of those base desires. Psalm 139 ends this way. David writes, search me, O God. This is a dangerous prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me know my anxious thoughts, see if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way of life everlasting. How do you identify, how do you get to the root of your desires first? Ask God, pray, pray. While you're praying, when you're praying every day, ask God, search my heart, reveal to me, like what, what do I really, really long for? What are my deep motives? Ask every day, every day, and over weeks and months, I bet you'll notice that you start paying more and more attention to those things. Once you've asked God, you can ask a trusted friend as well. Just a fair word of warning, this better be a trusted friend. And if they're a trusted friend, they might give you an answer you don't like. If they're a really good friend, they'll be honest. In Proverbs, it says the, the faithful are the wounds of a friend because they can be trusted. See so your, best, your best friends, your best friends are the ones who will tell you the hard truth for your benefit, not just tell you what they think you want to hear. How do you identify first? You just got to ask. Just ask. Start noticing. Start paying attention. Secondly, ask God to satisfy your desires. See, so here's the thing about, about desires and specifically our desires. All those things I've mentioned, none of those desires are inherently bad. Say you have this longing for approval. That's not a bad desire. That's a good, in fact, God has put our desires in us, our root, our deep desires. If you have this longing to be approved, it's because God wants you to feel a longing to be approved. It goes astray when you look to anything other than God to meet that desire or to satisfy it the desire itself is not inherently wrong god wants to satisfy that desire so if you look for approval from anyone else if 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 you have this deep longing you just have to be approved by people and you look to someone else your friend your spouse your coworker whoever you know what's going to happen inevitably at some point you're going to let them down And once you let them down, they're going to distance themselves from you, and then you're going to be crushed. You're going to feel worthless because you don't have their approval, at least in that moment, you see? But if you take that longing to God who says, I see you, I know you, I know the corners of your life that you hope nobody ever finds out about, and I see those corners, and I love you, more than I can explain, even in the, in the face of those deep, dark corners, like that's the kind of approval that no, nobody else can come close to that. If you've grown up in the church a lot, you've heard the phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. We all long to, to enter eternity and to have Jesus Christ look at us and say, well done, that's approval. No, I'm just going to, nobody in this world can give you that kind of approval. Here's one more example. What if your deepest, deepest desire is, is for um, the, like relational intimacy with a spouse or with a family or kids or whatever? Here's, a desire for relational intimacy is a good desire. But if you express it ultimately through your desire for a family, here's what goes wrong. One, if you find it, if you find someone, you get married and you have kids... You'll be clingy because all you want is for them to love you and all you want, you'll be clingy and you'll suffocate them and and it'll become a toxic relationship. And if you don't find it, then what happens? Then you just get depressed the whole time and you're hopelessly crushed and you're just just miserable. The desire for relational intimacy is a good desire. God says, find it in me. Find it in me. I know you better than you know yourself and I love you deeply. You see, you see, The desire itself is not the problem. God put it there, and he put it there so that you would find it satisfied in him. So first, how do do we deal with our temptations? First, ask God to reveal them to us. Start noticing, what are my deep desires? Secondly, ask God to fulfill and satisfy and meet those desires. And then third, when the temptation comes to to satisfy them anywhere else, Resist, and I would just say this, it's easier to avoid temptation than to resist it. It's You know when it's easiest to not eat five Oreos before dinner when you don't have five Oreos in your pantry? It's easiest to resist it when you're at Market Basket and you're walking past the cookie aisle and you say, you know what, I don't need Oreos and I'm not even going to buy them. It's easier to say no once at Market Basket because you know you already ate before you went shopping so you're not shopping hungry because we know how catastrophic that is. You're in Market Basket, right, and you just have to say no once. And now you've just prevented yourself from having to say no a hundred different times because it's two hours before dinner and you're starving and that's the easiest thing and you're going to ruin your appetite. Don't, try to resi- don't put yourself into temptation. Avoid it altogether. There's a whole field of psychology. It's called a- applied behavior analysis. And basically it tells us one of the, and they, they, they kind of pitch themselves as this new burgeoning field and it's just brilliant. I mean, they're just, the wisdom's been in the Bible for a thousand, two thousand years. Basically it says this, one of the best ways to change your behaviors is to change your environment. <laughs> Don't put yourself in a tempting situation. So if you want to eat less junk food, buy less junk food in the first place. Change your environment. When you identify those behaviors that lead to sin and death, even if you haven't gotten to the root desire, figure out how do I how do I not put myself in that situation? Paul puts it this way in his letters. Paul says four times in his letter, Paul says flee, flee. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says flee from sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6, he says flee from the love of money. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. In 2 Timothy 2, he says flee from from youthful passions. In other words, don't flirt with these things. Don't flirt with temptation. Don't entertain it. Don't see how close you can get to the line without stepping over it. See how much distance you can put between the line and yourself. Flee. Any Monty Python fans? You know, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they, they get to the killer rabbit, and the rabbit, run away, run away. It's that. It's like Monty Python theology. Just run away. Run away. Your desires are so much more powerful than you realize. Don't flirt with them flee from the improper expressions, and run to God. You see, our our trials and our temptations, they can be incredible opportunities for growth in life when we use those to drive us into the arms of Christ. Or they can be catastrophic traps that lead to sin and death when they become lures that draw us away from Christ and into the arms of some other lover who will never satisfy your needs. Which it becomes? Do your trials lead to life or to death? What's it going to be? Stay alert. Keep watch. Pray. And know this, as we wrap up, know this, that you have someone in Christ, in Jesus Christ, who can genuinely empathize with all of those longings and desires and temptations. And Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews says this. It says, Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So here's, here's what that means. Every single temptation you've ever experienced in your life, Jesus has experienced. Every single one. At a, at a, maybe not the exact specifics and this and that, but, but at a root base level, Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted because he himself was tempted in every single way and he never sinned. But then Paul says in 2 Corinthians that God made him, Jesus, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, who never sinned, to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who knows your temptation and never sinned, became sin. Why? So that you might become the righteousness of God. The power for all of this cannot come from within. The temptation comes from within. The power to overcome it comes from without. It comes only from God. It comes only from Jesus Christ. Because remember, our trials and temptations, they lead either to life or to death. It's one or the other. And Jesus Christ, the author of life, bore your crushing death. In essence, he took your death on himself so that he could give you his life. You see? God wants to use your trials and your temptations to lead you into a greater, a more fulfilling, a more joyful, and purpose filled life. But you will not find that life outside of Jesus Christ. Everything else falls short. We know it from experience. We've all tried. (laughs) Everything else falls short. So look to Christ, look to Him. Run to Him, flee to Him, and find life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, teach us what that means to run to You, to flee to You, and to find life. In those moments of temptation, give us Your strength not to try to fight the temptation on our own, but to trust Jesus whose power is far greater than our own. Help us to look to you and to trust you in all things. We ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.